you would open your Bibles to the 139th Psalm. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we ask that as your people, you would help us to be a people that's committed to thinking your thoughts after you. We ask, Lord, that we be a people that is committed to your word and the truth you've given us. We pray, Lord, that we would recognize that you are the creator of all things and that we are creatures. That it is our duty and responsibility to understand the world that you have laid out in the terms that you've given us in your word. We ask you to help us to understand that truth is important, that you are the God of truth, that you are truth, that you've given us truth, and that you expect us to live by the truth. Help us, Father, to recognize that there is no other truth than that which comes from you. We pray, Lord, you help us to live in submission to your word, knowing, Lord, that it is the path that will lead to our happiness and flourishing as a people, as individuals, as families, as nations. We ask, Lord, you would forgive us for the times that we believe that somehow we know better. We pray, Lord, you would forgive us for the times that we use your word as just merely something that gives us another view of the information. Help us, Father, to recognize the absolute authority of your word. We thank you, Father, for giving to us the truth that we may know and understand you and the world around us. We thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can tell by the sermon title exactly what the sermon is going to be on. It's pretty straightforward. And what I want to make sure that we recognize, and I'll be probably saying this more than once throughout the series, is that we want to make sure that as believers, that we are approaching the world, that we are thinking, that we are evaluating all that comes our way on the basis of the truth of what the Word of God says, that that is our duty as believers. As I mentioned before, there are times I'll say that we don't have a right to think in a particular way. We don't have a right to say certain things. And again, what I mean by that, as a believer, we don't have a right to say things that are contrary to what the Word of God says. I believe in many of the things that we, that we cover these are not areas that are somehow kind of gray and there's people on one side and with a little bit of a nuance, there's people on the other side. Some of that may mix in as we look at some of these things, but I believe even that would be clear. But those things that are clear, we must stand on those things. If we do not, we need to recognize it is sinful. It's not merely just your opinion. It's not just merely another opinion. This is not just merely some suggestion among many, and we have to figure out what the best one is. We need to base our beliefs and convictions on what we know the Word of God says. When we live our life that way, there are times that the Word of God does not say, for example, abortion is sinful. There's not a verse that says that. At the same time, the Scripture clearly teaches that it is. Because our understanding of life, our understanding of what goes on in life comes from the scripture. And we'll see that as we begin with Psalm 139. 
O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. As we read through the scripture, notice again how we are to approach what the Word of God says. This is a declaration. Yes, David is writing this, but this has been preserved by God for us, and it reveals to us the truth concerning him and God's relationship to us in this way. David is recognizing that God is intimately aware of every single thing in David's life, even to the point that God is fully aware of exactly what David's going to say in any given situation before David says it. There is nothing that God doesn't know. He says, where sh- in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And so there, what, what do we see? We see that God is intimately involved in David's, not just his birth, in his conception. It is attributed to God's working. It is a creation of God. We know how babies are made, but in essence, we also know we didn't really make them. We're part of the process. It is how God has determined things will work. And God is the one who has designed it to work that way. And David is acknowledging that. And it says that we have been knitted together. So the way that we were born, how much you weighed when you were born, whether you had 10 toes or 11 or 9, God was involved in all of that. He says in verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Here we strongly recognize that God knows who David is when he was a fetus, because he's unformed, but he knows him. The word know here is not just an intellectual acknowledgement that a, you know, the seed has impregnated the woman. There's, it's more intimate than that. God is aware of the person of David. And he goes on to say that in your book were written, past tense, every one of his days by the one who formed him, again, giving credit back to God, even though there was not yet any of them. Before he lived a day, all of this was already understood and known by God. Turn if you would to Jeremiah chapter 1. As you're turning there again, what I've read to you lays the foundation of our understanding of what is pregnancy, what is life, what is birth, where does that come from, what is a human being, all of those things. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is incredibly powerful. Here God is recognized as being the one who is saying 
that before this individual was even conceived, before they were formed, God knows that individual. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So here Jeremiah is told that his purpose in life was given to him by God before he was born. It was given to him, again, before he was formed in the womb. There is this assumption that is made in the Bible. And remember that when it comes to assumptions, if I make an assumption about you or someone, I could definitely be wrong. And often when we make assumptions, we are wrong more often than we're not. When God makes an assumption as we use human language, he's never wrong. Because he has all of the information. There's nothing new he's going to learn. There's nothing for him to learn. He is the source of all things, the source of all knowledge, the source of life. And so as we read this, this assumption that we kind of see here, you know, this preconceived idea or this, this uh, presupposition that God is communicating with is clearly the truth. We have always believed as Christians that human life is sacred because every single person is made in the image of God. So those truths then cannot be laid aside in discussing any issue, here in particular the issue of abortion. So what we're going to do this morning is basically we're going to use the foundation of Scripture to form our approach and thinking and answer to all of these supposed arguments or reasons or the attempt of giving justifying reasons to allow for abortion. This is the simplest of all the sermons to preach because it is so clear cut and dry. But too often what does happen is we may assume that abortion is wrong because we've heard someone else who has heard someone else who's heard someone else who says, yeah, that's against the Bible. We haven't even bothered to look. We need to hear. We need to think through this together to understand this is clearly what the Bible is teaching and that these supposed arguments do not hold any water. We also need to be convinced uh, of the scripture to the degree that it is the authority for all things, period. Remember again that knowledge, wisdom, as the Bible says, begins or starts with the fear of the Lord. So our starting point for thinking about anything is that God does exist, that God has spoken, that God is truth, that God speaks the truth. What he has said is not only the foundation of our thinking and communicating, but what we think believe, and say should not be contradictory of anything that God has said. That is our starting point. In 2018, here's just a few facts. You may have heard them. Nothing I'm saying this morning is brand new. There is, there is no, there's not one single original thought I'm going to give you. I, I've not read books on abortion. I've read a ton of articles. I don't I'm sure there's some books on it, but the bottom line is, is that I, I'm not giving you stuff that I've somehow come up with on my own or that in the brilliance of my study, um, I wrote this, these things down. Anything in here that sticks with you came from someone else. But in 2018, in 2018 abortion was the leading cause of death worldwide. 42 million victims. Now, you know, in our world, they don't even like for you to say that because they want to argue the point that somehow abortion, or maybe pretend, that it's not really the killing of people. But, but it is, based on what? What we've just read, Psalm 139, Jeremiah. 
In case you are unclear, an abortion involves using surgery or the taking of medicines to end a pregnancy. It is sometimes referred to as termination of pregnancy. According to Planned Parenthood, about one in four people who can get pregnant in the United States will have an abortion by the time they're 45 years old. In Iceland, the abortion rate for children diagnosed with Down syndrome was close to 100%. And they brag about it, that they've eliminated Down syndrome. And those who are unfamiliar with the method, you're like, whoa, they've eliminated Down syndrome. Well, are they sharing this medicine with the world? It's not medicine. It's through murder. You simply murder all those who have Down syndrome. That's what they've done. There's no other way to put that. Okay, there is. You can say that they have aborted women who have uh, tested positive for perhaps having a Down syndrome child. But again, the word abortion, which we often use, and I think the world uses more often because they don't like the way that it sounds, that we have, that the solution here is actually murder. But that's what it is. That's not going too far. That's, that's being accurate. That, that we want to make sure that we are clearly communicating what's going on. We, we do live in a society that isn't like that. They don't like absolutes, especially in this arena. And they don't always like clear communication. They don't like that. In the United States, 90% of preborn humans diagnosed with Down syndrome are terminated. Just so you know, in case you didn't think that we were on our way to becoming like Iceland in that way, we are. In Asia, widespread sex-selective abortions have led to 160 million missing women. 160 million female babies were aborted because they were female. You may have heard this on many debates in New York City. More black babies are aborted than are born. I just don't see how people don't see that as a problem. There are some arguments made in favor of terminating unborn children, so we're going to go through those. We're going to think through them. We're going to try to be Logical, that honors the Lord. Thinking logically honors the Lord. Remember that God is logical. God is rational. God is never illogical. God is never irrational. God is also, by the way, always right. His logic is perfect. But he's created us to be logical and to think logically and to use logic and reason. So argument number one would be this. Without legalized abortion... Women will be forced to revert getting abortions done in back alleys that are performed by butchers using coat hangers rather than being in the safety of licensed medical professionals. First of all, that's an inflation of facts. Before Roe versus Wade, before that um, uh, decision was handed down in the 70s, 90% of all illegal abortions were performed by licensed physicians. Just, that's just a fact. No way to get around that. That comes from the American Journal of Health. Uh, the lady who said that, who was quoting that, uh, was the lady who was the head of Planned Parenthood back then in 1960. Secondly, the argument misses the point. What's the point? Whether or not the preborn are people. We just have to get right back to that. That, is, that never changes. That's never been addressed. It's not being addressed. The argument misses the point, whether or not the preborn are people. If the unborn are human people, the argument leads us to the false conclusion that society must make it safe and legal to kill people. That's the logical conclusion of that thinking. Argument number two, 
Women should not be forced to bring into the world disabled children who would be genetically reduced to lives of extreme hardship and unhappiness. I came across this, the next thing I'm going to tell you, I came across uh, in a few different papers. It made me laugh because it seems to be so obviously true. So again, remember the argument is, is that women should be forced to bring into the world children that are disabled, who again would genetically have lived lives that are reduced to extreme hardship and unhappiness. Just so you know, people alive today with disabilities are vehemently opposed to that idea. There's not a single organization of disabled people in favor of abortion of those who may have disabilities. That not one exists. The argument makes a false correlation between deformities and unhappiness. It has been said that with the disabled, our obligation is to find alternatives for the problems that uh, patients face. Death is not an acceptable alternative. In the early 1980s, there was a study that was done of two hundred consecutive suicides in Baltimore and it was noted that not one suicide had been committed by people with congenital abnormalities. So the argument falls on its face that we're forcing these individuals to live lives of unhappiness. Says who? I have met and you have met many individuals with all kinds of difficulties, handicaps, whatever you want to call it. They're pretty happy. I knew a child once who had we might call incredible deformities. Uh, he, uh, his legs, when I met him, he was a high school student. His legs were maybe three inches long. Um, he had one normal arm. The other one, it was a hand that was attached to his shoulder. He rode a skateboard to school, refused his mom and dad driving him to school. He was fine. He had a backpack, smaller than most he had a backpack. This kid, he loved life. He loved skateboarding. He even made fun of his own disability. He was, he was, a, he was a mess. He was just filled with happiness. And it wasn't, you can't fake that every day of your life. You can put on a show for a little while, but eventually you run out of energy. He was just always that way, at least the time that I knew him. It's incredible. Oh, by the way, he's not in favor of abortion either. Because he sees himself as being extremely happy. Of course, the question is raised, should be, and this would be the third point, who are we to determine when another life is not worth living? Who gave us that right or power? But once again, the argument, this is the point. Whether or not they're preborn or people. One has pointed out that if the preborn handicap are people, then there is nothing in the argument that keeps us from executing handicapped people who are already born. Because that's the logic of the statement. But again, it misses the point. It is true that people are born with handicaps. That's true. Killing them before they're born is not a solution. Period. Because that individual is made in the image of God. We know that from Scripture. It has been marred because of the curse of sin. Who are we to determine that life is not worth living? It used to be common to believe that God is the only one that has the right to determine. It goes kind of back to the beginning. I've mentioned this before. I'll mention this again. That when Eve was tempted to eat of the fruit, 
It was not only that she would know good from evil, because I believe her and Adam already did, to a degree at least, maybe in a limited way, they knew what good and evil was, but so that they, she, she would then be like God. That would be the one who determines what is good and evil. And so there are those who make these arguments who are saying, I am determining that this is good. I'm saying this is good that we abort these children because they're going to have these handicaps and that it is not evil. You and I don't have the right to determine that. We are not God. Number three, banning abortions forces poor women to continue their pregnancies, putting them under a crushing financial burden while contributing to the problem of overpopulation. Uh, the lady that ran for governor, this was her argument uh, a couple of weeks before the uh, election, that banning abortions forces poor women to continue their pregnancies. Of course, the first thing that we should note is that this contradicts the pro-choice position that abortion is an inherent right that all women possess during all nine months of pregnancy. So it doesn't matter what the argument would be if they have that right. If there were no overpopulation or economic hardship, would this right go away? Because again, the argument is based on they're going to have this economic hardship and there's overpopulation. So are you saying then if there's no economic hardship and no overpopulation, she no longer has the right? Because that's what you're saying. And it falls apart. It also confuses finding a solution and eliminating a problem. We could eliminate the problem of poverty by executing all the poor. But that method undercuts our moral axiom that people have great value and should be treated with dignity regardless of their predicament. Thereby, this fails to find a solution. You already know what I'm going to say. This argument also misses the point. It misses the point whether or not the abortion are pre-born are, uh, are, are pre people. Are they people? Amen. That never changes. That, that's a constant in all of this. An individual by the name, I think it's pronounced Baruch Brody, he wrote a book that's called Abortion, small book, Abortion and the Sanctity of Human Life, a philosophical view. I didn't read that book from cover to cover. I read portions of it. It says that in an age where we doubt the justice of capital punishment, even for the very dangerous criminals, killing a fetus who has not done any harm to avoid a future problem it may pose seems totally unjust. There are indeed many social problems that could be erased simply by destroying those persons who constitute or cause them, but that is a solution repugnant to the values of society itself. In short, then, if the fetus is a human being, the appeal to its being unwanted justifies no abortions. Fourthly, an argument is made, a woman should not be forced to endure the trauma of bringing an unwanted pregnancy to term in cases in which she was profoundly violated, such as incest or rape. It's a hard one for non-believers to swallow. It is at times difficult for believers, I believe, who do not begin with the proper foundation to swallow. Remember that it is not our sense of justice. It's not our sense of love. It's not our sense of what will bring peace to a person or what makes them uh, happy or unhappy. It is what is the truth of the scripture say. And we, we base our convictions on that. Is that hard? Well, of course it's hard. It's not natural. And we all tend to be selfish anyway, where 
it might be easier to say what others should do, but then when it comes to us, there's exceptions. We see that in traffic all the time. I know that I've experienced that. I get pulled over. It does happen, you know. Preachers get pulled over. It's, it's unfortunate. Because usually when that happens, I'm in a hurry. And it seems the officer really takes their time. Like, dude, what's the deal? You know? <laughs> of course, I don't say that. <laughs> But the bottom line is, is that we, we just tend to think uh, uh, in those terms. When it comes to this argument, again, it is important that as Christians, we acknowledge the immense pain that is endured by women who have been victimized by incest or rape. That is not a small thing. and It is not a minor thing. We should, as the scripture says, weep with those who weep and do all we can to help. It is important to gain perspective, to clarify the real reason abortion is supported. It has been pointed out throughout the years that many of these kinds of cases where there's a pregnancy that results from either rape or incest, that these cases make up 1% of abortions. We could ask this question then, based on this argument. Does this then mean that the other 99% of abortions are morally wrong? Because remember, that's the reason that's given. They say, well, what about incest and rape? Okay, so are you saying that those that are not associated with that, is that morally wrong? And of course, they're not going to say that that is, or even answer. Since most, if not everybody, would agree then, uh, it has just become clear that such tragic cases are not the underlying reason they support abortion. This argument does not justify the abortion-on-demand position, which holds up abortion as an inherent matter of reproductive justice, a right that all women possess during all nine months of pregnancy. Many of you are familiar with this, the idea of framing the argument to where there is, it is um, deceitful, it's a tactic that is used to try to place your argument or your desire, your goal in the best light possible. And that it can be done in a way that is deceptive. And so here, when it comes to the issue, it has been made by many. They make the issue of abortion to be a reproductive issue or reproductive health. That's not what it is. But by saying that, again, they avoid what it really is. Kind of pretend that we're not really killing an unborn child. This is what we're dealing with. And again... The argument misses the whole point, whether or not the preborn are people. The argument we probably hear most on the news is probably this. Fifthly, a woman has a right to do whatever she chooses with her own body without interference from either the government or other people's personal moral beliefs. So abortion should be legal. <coughs> so let's get technical. The fetus is not a part of the woman's body. It's not a part of her body like her arm or her leg or her fingers or her ears or anything else. It is attached to her body in a biological, intimate way. But a pre-born fetus is a distinct human being with its own unique genetic code, heart, circulatory system, brain, and more. If it was a part of her body, then the genetic pattern would be the same, but it's not. 
Besides, our rights over our bodies are not absolute as far as the law is concerned. Prostitution is still illegal in most states. You cannot legally pour drugs into your body as an exercise of bodily freedom. These rights are overridden in cases when your exercise of bodily rights presents clear harm to yourself or to others. The choice is hardly as autonomous and liberating as it's cracked up to be because the news won't give this to you. There's a lot of different types of studies that are done, so these figures may be a little different by a few percentage points, depending on what you read, but these are basically close to being accurate in every single case. 64% of women who sought abortions say they felt pressured by others. Whatever happened to bodily autonomy? Over half thought abortions was morally wrong. Less than 1% said they felt better about themselves after getting an abortion. 77.9% felt guilt after their abortion. 59.9% felt that a part of them had died. And once again, the argument misses the point. Whether or not the preborn are people. As we listen to these, you can tell that there's an absolute in Scripture that we must submit to. So we can say, I believe. It is difficult to see how an individual who calls himself a Christian can then be in favor of abortion for any reason. It's very difficult to say, how, how do you do that? Remember that to violate or contradict what the Word of God says, that is an act of rebellion. Period. Many of these cases where women are pregnant, yes, it is unfortunate. Absolutely. Horrific in some cases. Absolutely. But when does one horrific situation ever justify murdering someone else? It doesn't. So why would it with those who are Preborn. One individual that I was reading said, ethically speaking, pro-life advocates and pro-choice advocates agree it is wrong to take the life of a human person. So the debate is not a pro-life versus pro-murder debate, but about the non-moral question of when human personhood begins. This explains why the pro-choice side offers a number of explanations as to when human personhood begins. So the question is, when is that decisive moment when the right to life kicks in? Now remember, based on what we read in Psalm 139 in Jeremiah, we saw that it does begin at, pre, at, at conception. That the individual is known as an individual to God. As an individual, as a person. It's human life. What does the world say? Some will say this, well, basically, when is that decisive moment when the right to life kicks in? It's birth. After 40 weeks, a human becomes a person with full rights uh, to life the moment he or she is outside the womb. However, the only difference between a baby five seconds prior to birth and a second after birth is only one thing, location. There is no difference which seems to be an arbitrary foundation for personhood. Five seconds ago, they weren't a person. Now they are. That's absurd to have that kind of stance. 
Peter Singer, Helga Kuss, I believe is her name, they have a very disturbing response to this argumentation. They say pro-life groups are right about one thing. The location of the baby inside or outside the womb cannot make such a crucial moral difference. The solution, however, is not to accept the pro-life view that the fetus is a human being with the same moral status as yours or mine. The solution is the opposite, to abandon the idea that all human life is of equal worth. That's what you have to end up with. At least they're honest with that. All human life is not of equal worth. Of course, who then decides what is the worth of human beings? Do you have the right to determine what is the worth of another individual? Does someone else have the right to determine your value or the value of your children or the worth of your grandchildren? We would all be adamantly opposed to that. Yet this is the stance they're taking. Some say, well, no, really, the moment of human life is when there's viability. Somewhere between 20, 24 and 26 weeks. A human becomes a person with full rights to life the moment he or she is capable of surviving independent of the mother's body. Of course, many doctors have pointed out that it needs to be uh, seen that the viability is contingent on the advancement of technology. Because with newer tech pushing viability backwards. So it's no longer 24 to 26 weeks. The, the child can live if, if it's born at 20 or if the child's born at 18 or whatever, or whatever. A strong case could be made that the more dependent the individual is, this baby, the more valuable, the more helpless a human being, the more we should do as a society to protect it. Most of the, of the many different laws that we have in our country that we that, that brings added expense to business every day is the desire of our society to give access to those who are handicapped. You want to build this building, have a business? You've got to have uh, the doors have to be wide enough because it has to be wheelchair uh, accessible. Your bathroom has to be such and such because individuals who are handicapped who are in wheelchairs have to be able to use that. And they have all these different things. So we take those individuals who are more vulnerable, who are unable to get around or, or do the kinds of things that we would call able-bodied people to do. We spend extra money and time and effort to help them along so they can be, in a sense, on equal footing. Not really, but you know the idea of what we're trying to get across there. Why would it be suddenly different here? But it is. Some says, well, no, actually what happens is, is, is brain function. If there's brain function and, and activity, uh, then this decisive moment is between 6 to 14 weeks. Of course, again, by itself, this contradicts the uh, abortion as the fundamental right of a woman through all nine months of pregnancy. It also fails to recognize that humans retain the right to life even when they aren't in a conscious active state, whether they're sleeping or comatose. Then there's one, I've never heard this before, but it's called agnostic individualism. And that is this stance. Well, we don't really know when human life begins, so we should just leave it to individual women to decide for themselves. There have been individuals that I have heard who kind of do the man-on-the-street interview. Don't put a lot of stock in that, but it is interesting to hear what people think sometimes. And so an individual was asked, do you think that a mother should have the right 
to abort her child up until its first birthday. That would mean the mother gives birth, we celebrate the birthday a year later, the person just used the word abortion in there, and the individual said, oh, absolutely. And I wondered, was, did the guy listen to the question? Do you know what she just said? Because frame So then the individual did this a few times with some individuals, said, so you think then that when a mother gives birth, she should still have the right to snuff out her child's life up until the first year if things don't work out the way she wants it to? And they said yes. Just so you know that that, in one sense, what you see displayed is human depravity. I'm not going to say the individual is more depraved than anyone else because the Bible says those things come from the heart. Man is separated from God by his sin. It takes all forms. We should not really be shocked. We are shocked because that just defies logic. It's just not reasonable and goes against just the way things have been for so long. And of course, for the believer, goes against every single moral standard that we believe is, is given to us in the word of God. But you really shouldn't be shocked by that or surprised. Not knowing does not justify a pro-choice position. It does the opposite. See, if you're hunting in the woods and you hear a noise in the brush and you're uncertain as to whether or not it's your friend or a deer, morality and common sense dictate that you do not pull the trigger. A lack of knowledge doesn't give you the right to murder Lack of knowledge means you bring about more caution. No matter what the argument is that an individual makes for abortion, it is not only morally wrong, the word that we would use, it is sinful. It is rebellion against God. Amen. Christians, some in attempt to be, whether it's to be liked, maybe it's to be seen as being progressive, whether it's a desire to kind of break free from being viewed as a Christian doesn't think and only follows what the Bible says. Maybe it's a desire to not be associated with being a fundamental or a fundamentalist or all those things. Begin to waver for whatever the reasons are. And all those reasons are just wrong. We follow what the Bible says, period. The world will look down on us for that. They will view that as being adolescent behavior like you have to do what your mommy and daddy say that's not how we view authority imagine standing before a judge in court and the judge says I want to know why you did those things that you did and you say well I'm not going to do what my mommy and daddy say yeah but you, you, you beat that man for his money I still don't do what my mommy and daddy say I needed that money. Now, I know that sounds absurd because nobody would ever do that. But there are those who think that way. And so sometimes we're afraid to be viewed that way as Christians because we, in a sense, love what the world says. We want their adulation. We want their uh, approval. That just shows that we have missed what it means to, to know who we are in Christ. We have missed our identity with Christ. The way that you address that is by, by understanding not only what God has done for us, but by, again, immersing ourselves in the Word of God. Understanding better to a, a much more clear degree 
what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and why he had to do that. To understand that we are morally culpable, that we are morally degenerate, deep into the sense of who we are as human beings. And the only way that could have been changed and addressed is for there to be an absolute change of the entire individual. We would call that the change of their heart. And that's what Christ does when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. That we need to be forgiven. We, it is important that we make sure that we at least do not allow others to somehow think that we are above those who have had abortions. Don't allow that kind of attitude to come out in your life. We are all capable of horrific kinds of sins. I know I've shared this at least once. It was a startling story. A friend of mine, um, uh, it's important to know this for the story. He's, his name was Calvin Scott. He was a, a fellow chaplain when I was in Hawaii. I met him there. He's from Baltimore, uh, Maryland. He, uh, he's, a, uh, he's black. And he told me that his son, this is many, many years ago, was dating in the church they were going to, he was dating the pastor's daughter. The pastor was white. And uh, she became pregnant. And so they came and they um, went to tell her parents first that she was pregnant. And the pastor then, besides the anger and the shock and all of that, told them that they needed to take care of things and that he would pay for the abortion. They went and told my friend, Calvin, not only that she was pregnant, but then told him that what her dad had said. Scotty is a wild man. So Scotty immediately went over to the pastor's house, knocked on the door, passed open the door, and the first thing Scotty said loudly was, shame on you. What is wrong with you? Do you not love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul? And then just probably went on for an impromptu sermon for about 10 minutes, calling the man to repentance. You see how quickly people can change. That pastor would have been considered pro-life, even though this was way before any of those kinds of things were going on, would be considered pro-life on any way. And, and it probably would have even preached on it. But when it suddenly came to him, an embarrassment or whatever it was, instantly changed. We can do this secretly. We can keep this quiet. That was his approach. So we need to make sure that we are standing firm on Scripture. There are times that it will cost us. It will cost us. We, we, we may be in a situation where we're going to be embarrassed. It may be embarrassing. It, it may not only be just this one issue, but this is the issue that we're talking about. That's never the answer. We trust God and do what's right. Individuals get pregnant out of wedlock, we don't celebrate it, but we do all we can to help. That's what you do. You do all you can to help. We never condone it. We never say good. We never celebrate it. We don't just say, well, you know, that's just, it's, it's fast and done. Nothing we can do now. So let's just be happy so that she can have, you know, really good self-esteem. That's, that's, not, that's not ridiculous. Those self-esteem things would be just thrown away. She's, she needs to recognize what she probably does, that what she does is wrong, rebelling against God. She's brought shame, shame to her family, shame to herself, shame to God. There is forgiveness with God. There is forgiveness. She needs to repent. She needs to confess. We need to accept the situation, and then now we move forward. Now what do we do to help the situation? Now what do we do to make sure that it doesn't get worse? And just you know what my friend Scotty did? was My, uh, my friend Scotty told his son and told her, that he was convinced that they probably should not get married. 
because they weren't compatible for a lot of reasons. The main ones was Scotty knew that his son wasn't a believer. But what else did Scotty do? He and his wife talked, they prayed, they adopted the baby. And they raised the baby as their own. That's what they did. Inconvenience, added expense, and they weren't exactly young when all that happened. And they brought in a, a newborn into their home. And sometimes that's what it takes. But that's what we do as believers. That's the kind of things that we, that we want to make sure that we, we don't absolve ourselves of responsibility and say, I'm just so grateful that's not my problem. And so I trust that you understand that as believers, that that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not only that you're saved, that you go to church on Sunday and everything else. What it means is we have to take stands. Unfortunately, this is a political issue. We take a stand on a political issue. It's a moral issue. There's no way to get away from it. You, there's no way to get away from it. It's, it's a moral issue. And when people throw out that idea that we don't legislate morality, well, we've done it our, the entire time our nation's been around. Murder's still wrong. That's a moral issue. Prostitution is still wrong in most states. It's a moral issue. And it goes on from there. And so we stand on the word of God. That is our authority. We don't say we're better than others. We don't think we're smarter than others. It's none of that thing. It's what the scripture says. And I submit and follow what the word of God has to say. And it's the ugliness of the world in which we live in, and it will remain that way until the Lord returns. And so I trust this morning that you recognize that that is the pattern that we are to follow as believers. And the beginning of wisdom and knowledge is the fear of God. And that's what that looks like in that situation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace, kindness, and love, and for the truth that you give us in your word. Father, it may not be this issue. There may be other, other issues where there is a clear teaching on Scripture, and we find ourselves moving in a different direction for many different reasons. We ask Lord, you would forgive us for that. There are many running around, maybe many, who claim to be believers, who claim that there are exceptions to the rule, and there are certain circumstances and certain situations where abortion is okay. Pray, Lord, you help us to recognize that that's not the case. Because in the end, you're still taking the life of a human being. And there's just no way to get around that. There are those who hate the harshness or the abruptness of the truth. But Father, we can hold to that and cling to that and stand on that and still be loving and kind and gracious. And we must be, and we ask you to help us to be. We don't know what we're going to face in our lives, Father. Some of us may come face to face with this kind of thing in our own families. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now, strengthening us, that we may always do what is right and that which honors you even in the midst of a sinful mess. Help us to be strong. Help us, Father, to pray for each other and to help each other because, Lord, if any of us ever faces these kinds of situations, we will need the help of our brothers and sisters in the church. Help us to be there for each other, to stand with, and then to help in maybe even very practical ways if necessary. We know, Lord, that sometimes life is hard, but that's why you've not only given to us your spirit and the wisdom of the word of God, you've given us to each other to ease that burden. And I pray, Lord, that we'll always be up to the task. Now, Father, when you come again, you'll find that we are faithful to you in every single circumstance we find ourselves in. Father, if there have been some here today who may, maybe they've already paid the price. They've already lost friends. There's already tension in their families because they refuse to 
given and what the Word of God says. We thank you for them and ask that you bless them and continue to be gracious to them and supply their needs. Help us, Father, always to realize that in the end, the answer to this mess that we find ourselves in is always going to be Jesus Christ. Because it's a heart change that must take place. And it will not take place because we vote in certain people or because we have certain judges or anything else. It's going to come when man repents of his sin and turns to Christ. And is saved by your grace. Thank you, Father, again for your great love and incredible patience with us. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.